uh, host uh, Greg Thompson uh, and come alongside the ministry of RUF Reformed University Fellowship and, and Danny Heineman uh, here on campus. And it was great to see so many of you uh, with us on, at our events on Friday. And you've uh, had the opportunity to, to learn about Greg. Uh, for those of you who uh, were not able to be there, you'll find uh, some information about him on page 14 of our bulletin today. Uh, he's the Director of Research and Strategy at uh, Claiborne Reborn, and he shared about this on Friday night, uh, an initiative to, to help uh, bring renewal uh, and healing uh, to uh, a neighborhood in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, before that, he was uh, the senior pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. We're really thankful that you can be with us uh, here today, Greg, and uh, glad to hear from you as you bring God's word. Our scripture today uh, is Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. It can be found on page 8 in your bulletin or page 854 if you have one of those black Bibles. Before I read the passage, please pray with me. Lord, we long to hear from you. Speak to us through your word. Help us to listen and be open to what you would have to teach us today. Amen. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I greet you from the American South, where it is not cold. <laughs> we will not have snow for a long time, but I'm glad to be here with you all. Um, thank you for your hospitality to me and your kindness to me uh, and having me. It's a, I want to just recognize that in a world where lots of people are voiceless, uh, the opportunity to have a voice here has been given by you, and I'm grateful to you for that. And um, in a world where lots of people don't have shelter or welcome, thank you for welcoming me and giving that to me in your wonderful city. When I was 40 years old, which was not that long ago, <laughs> I experienced a trauma. I was a senior pastor of a church. I had four children, still have four children. I was working on my dissertation at the University of Virginia in civil rights history on, the, on, the, on Martin Luther King. And I'd gone to this farm down in South Carolina, where I'm from, uh, and I was staying in this farm for two weeks so that I could uh, have some unbroken time. My wife very kindly gave me this space away. Um, she went to stay and took our kids to be with her family so I could research and write. And during that particular time, what I was doing is I was writing 
and researching uh, on how African-American personhood has been conceived in throughout American culture. How, have, how has America taught us to think about African-Americans and, and starting really in pre-slavery, going to slavery, then going to Reconstruction and then the Jim Crow, the contemporary civil, the civil rights movement, and then making its way into contemporary times. And it was a pretty um, miserable two weeks, to be honest with you, because what I did during that time is I essentially sat and read histories of incredible acts of dehumanization that were, were terrible. Um, I would read it for about 12 hours a day, um, take a break to go uh, kayaking, and then take a break to, uh, to go eat dinner, but I had to use this time. So I was just getting a ton of information. Um, and at one point, I think it was about two in the morning, although I can't quite be sure, I pushed back from this desk where I was sitting in this cabin in the middle of this, uh, of this old farm. And I said out loud something I had never said or thought before, but it struck me and I just slid back, put my glasses on my book, and I said this out loud, I live in the longest standing white supremacist nation in history. That's what I said. Now that was a difficult thing to say out loud and I surprised myself when I said it. It's probably difficult for you, for me to say it to you right now. Um, in part because the language is so disorienting. The language of white supremacy, it conjures up like people from my part of the country with uh, sheets on their heads, right? And it feels like that's not really the right language. And then on Armistice, on Armistice Day weekend, you know, it feel, when we think about times in which our nation has done so much good in the world, it feels a little bit ungrateful to talk about it that way. It feels weird. But I have to say that over the past uh, years, since the moment I first uttered that out loud, and I have thought about it and worked on it more and more, I have, I'm absolutely convinced that it's true. That when I say the language of white supremacy, I'm not just talking about people in white sheets. And I'm not just talking about what you or I or any other individual Christian feels in their hearts. What I'm talking about is the structure of social institutions as they have taken shape in the United States over the course of the past 400 years. And if you look at healthcare, if you look at politics, if you look at education, if you look at economic opportunity, if you look at housing, if you look at transportation, it doesn't matter where you look. Without fail, those institutions were originally, and many of them have sustained in their orientation toward protecting white Americans, and specifically for the longest time, white male Americans. And it did so at incredible and lasting harm to African American communities. And, and honestly, what I'm saying right now is basically beyond controversy, historically speaking. This isn't even, it's even controversial. The, and it's not just a flash, it's a theme. Think about apartheid, which Americans will we vilify. That was about 45 years. American white supremacy has been almost four centuries. There's nothing like it anywhere. And in the trauma of realizing this, I also realized that I needed to address it. It fell upon me like a fever. To not do so would be a failure, I knew that. It would be like going to Rwanda, being a Christian person in Rwanda and not talking about the genocide. It would be like being a Christian person in South Africa and not talking about apartheid. It would be like being a Christian person in England and not trying to do something about their food. Just, just, just kidding. Just, just kidding. I love England and I love their food. But how, how am I to do this? Like how am I this one person, this southern person, uh, to, to, 
to step into the structure of this massive social institution called white supremacy. And what am I supposed to do? What does love require me to do as a Christian man who is a missionary in this culture? Now, to do that, I do what you do and what Christians around the world have done. I look to the text to try to help me understand what I should do now because my life suddenly didn't make any sense. I was a pastor of a large, mostly white church in a large, mostly white town, university town. Um, and I had no idea how I was supposed to proceed at now addressing these things. But I looked to the text, and this is one of the texts to which I looked that you heard. Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. Now, most of you are familiar with this passage of Zacchaeus. It's a very familiar passage to you and to your children, I suspect. And most often it is told as a story of Jesus. It's a story, as all things are, about Jesus, how he came how he saw Zacchaeus, how he called Zacchaeus, how he welcomed Zacchaeus to himself, or more technically welcomed himself into Zacchaeus' home. It's a story about Jesus, and it is that. That's how I'd read it. But I also realize at this point that it's also a story about Zacchaeus. It's a story about Zacchaeus, about what he did when he encountered Jesus. And that is what began to interest me, um, what he did in response. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to look at Zacchaeus and see there a model of what it means um, to be a Christian who then gives your life to repairing a social order that you have contributed to destroying. How, how, do, we, how do we do that? Now, the first thing I want to say, and I see these two movements in Zacchaeus's life. Okay, the first is what I'm going to call a return to communion, a return to communion. Now, I think this story is powerful and incredibly beautiful. And here's, here's, Here's why. I want you to remember the background of the story. This begins not with, the, not with the Gospel of Luke. It begins with the Trinity, where the Bible story begins. And the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in perpetual and mutually delighted communion for all time and beyond time with one another. That's, that's what Christians believe about the Trinity. And we believe that creation is an overflow of triune love and that God, in creating, invited his creatures to participate in that communion, in that intimate union with God. That's what we believe. Now, we believe that the fall was a disruption of that communion and it sent us out of exile, it sent us, excuse me, into exile and out of that communion. It broke that communion with God and, and our life with him. But that redemption, when Jesus comes to us, when God comes to us through covenant and through incarnation, the goal of that redemption is to restore us back into table fellowship, back into communion with God himself. And so we see this in Abraham and Sarah when, when, the, when the messengers from heaven come and sit down and have a meal with the two of them. We see this in Israel as God provides uh, from the heaven. He provides the meat and the bread from the heaven and the water from the rock. This is a restoration to this table communion, this intimacy of food and dining with God. We see this in the priests. We see it in Jesus' own ministry and the feeding of the 5,000, how he is bearing witness to the fact that he is not just the new Moses, but he is setting the new table before the world where we can once again partake of the life of the Trinity. And we see this in the Bible and the way that it ends, telling us about a time, a banquet that is to come, when all of God's people together will sit at the, at the wedding feast of the Lamb. There is this constant trajectory of people made to dine and commune with God, and that communion is, is seen as expressed through table fellowship. That's the vision, that redemption is returned to communion and table fellowship with God. So now think about Zacchaeus in the middle of that story. Zacchaeus is a sinner. He's a particular kind of sinner. You know this, uh, if, you've, if you've studied this passage at all, Zacchaeus is a Jewish person who has actually been enlisted by the imperial Roman government to exploit his own people, 
through the way he collects taxes. Rome is not going to pay him to collect taxes. He's going to do it on their behalf, and that means he can charge whatever he wants to as long as he gives Rome the appropriate amount of money. So this person is benefiting from a social structure, actively benefiting from a social structure that is enriching him personally. And that is wicked. That's exploitation and it's theft. And he knows this, and so he goes and he hides. He wants to see Jesus. He can't see Jesus because he's not tall. I don't know exactly what that means. I always think as, a, as an enormously tall person that that's kind of a funny story. But Zacchaeus climbs a tree um, so that he can see Jesus, um, and he's, he's hiding there, which reminds me of exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. He's called out by Jesus, just as Adam and Eve were called out in the garden. He comes down, and where does this eventually go? Jesus says to him, what does Jesus say to him? You come down, I must stay at your house. What's happening? Is that just Jesus being a rude, uh, rude person, like inviting himself? No, if you remember the story of the trajectory and the arc of redemption is table fellowship and communion with God. Jesus is making this a living embodiment for Zacchaeus. I'm going to return you, even you, back into this table fellowship and this communion with God. Here is a vision of what it means to return to communion. And that is a very powerful part of this story that I've heard and that I've believed my entire life, and I still believe it. But there's a second part of this story that I have not really paid much attention to. It's not just the return to communion. It's Zacchaeus' repair of community. That's the second thing I want to talk to you about. I want you to see Zacchaeus' repair of community. Remember, we were made to use our lives to benefit other people God made us a creation. We were supposed to grow the wonders of the earth and bestow those bounties on all people. When we fell, we, we, we grew into violence and death and murder and theft, all these horrible things. But when redemption came, God once again said, I want you to be a blessing to the nations. I want you to go out and use the goods that I have given you, the goods that you have, for the good of other people. You see it in Abraham. You see it in Moses. You see it in Israel, that they were supposed to be this light to the Gentiles. You see then the disciples as Jesus sends them out and says, I want you to go heal. I want you to go restore. I want you to go repair. And, of course, you see it in Revelation 21 and 22 where there is this restored community and all the nations of the earth bring their glory in for the, for the mutual joy and bounty of everybody. So the vision here that the Bible gives us is that not just that we restore to, we're restored to communion with God, but we also repair. We have the, the repair of the community that exists in this world between us. And that's what you see in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a person that has broken a community. Now, he didn't start this tax system. He just was born into it, and he stepped into it, and he willfully participated in it. I mean, what's a guy supposed to do, right? It's not like he's, he has, doesn't have a lot of other job opportunities, apparently. So he takes this one, and he's benefiting from it. Like, what's the big deal? But he has participated in the theft of a community and harming his brothers and sisters. And so here, in response to Jesus' invitation, Zacchaeus does something amazing. First, he comes down that tree into the midst of the, of the community that he has harmed. I want you to think about that for a moment. Think if this was a room of people and you had harmed everybody in this room and they all knew that you had. And you were standing right here. What would you want to do? You would be looking for an exit that's what I would be doing. I would be thinking, okay, can, there's no door there. Why not? I'll go to this one. Right? That's what I would be experiencing. Zacchaeus comes down the tree in the midst of the community that he has hurt, and he faces them. That's an incredible thing that you see him doing. 
He also bears their reproach. What do they start saying about him? They're grumbling. They're calling him a sinner. Um, You can imagine they probably called him a few other things during that moment. He doesn't respond. He doesn't go, oh, yeah, well, listen, I was just doing what I was born into, and I don't even, it's the Romans' fault, so, like, why are you even talking to me? He doesn't do any of that. He comes into the community. He bears their reproach. He speaks the truth about himself. He's like, if I've taken anything from people here, which is another way to say I've taken a bunch of stuff from people here. Uh, (laughs) If I've done anything wrong, guys. No, he says, look, I've done this, and I'm going to return it. He speaks the truth, and then he gives his resources back to repair this community. First to the poor. He said, I'm going to give half of everything I have, and I'm going to give that to poor people. And then I'm going to pay back to all of you from whom I'm stolen. I'm going to pay you back four times what, you, what I took from you. That's amazing. I have always heard this story of Zacchaeus as a story about Jesus and how amazing and kind Jesus is to welcome even this little Zacchaeus sinner. But it is also a story about how in response to Jesus, Zacchaeus does one of the most extraordinary acts of public reparative repentance listed in the history of the Bible. I think it's completely amazing. And so what he's doing here, he is repairing the community. He is seeking to repair the community that he has participated in breaking. Now, this is important to me for these reasons. First, because we live in a broken community. Now, I'm from the American South, uh, where our problems are a little bit more obvious, shall we say? And it may be harder to think about this up here. And when I talk, start talking about white supremacy, you might be thinking, like, well, that's just for a bunch of y'all southern weirdos. That's, that's your thing. That's not our deal up here. But you know it is. You know it is. And I'm not mad at anybody in here. But this is just a basic fact, right, that we have all participated in this. We live in a broken community, and as God's people, we have a responsibility to move into that. Now, how do we do it? Now, first, I want to say that I think we have to return to communion with God. I live in, the, in a world of activists. That's what I live in. I'm surrounded um, in Memphis by people who are working on all these issues all the time. And a lot of them are not reunited to God through Jesus Christ. And as a result, there's mostly, it's mostly driven by fury. It's mostly driven by fury and vengeance. And I see in my own life that in the, in the, the moral life of the activist and people who are trying to do social repair, how important it is that that is grounded in the fact that we are in communion with the Trinity and that is a relationship of love and not a relationship of retribution. And this is one of the things King was constantly talking about and why he was so concerned during the civil rights movement that the people who were involved in this work had, had both a moral discipline and that they were rooted in a Christian ethic of love because without that, it just becomes retaliatory violence. And I think we see that in our culture and I'm very concerned about that. And so I want to say to all of us, we, are, we must be rooted in our life with God through Jesus Christ in the Trinity because that is the seed and the source of all loving action in the world. And without that, we just become angry and vindictive people. I see that, and I believe that. But at the same, thing, at the same time, I want to say we have to be repairers of community. Our life is not just to be in relationship with Jesus, and it is not just to pursue what we call racial reconciliation. It is not just about racial reconciliation. As I was in, I was in, a, in a group with a, a number of African-American leaders one time, and, and they said, brother, I, want, I was talking about racial reconciliation. And they said, brother, we love you, but we want to be real clear with you that we didn't march so that we could be friends with you. 
We marched so that our children wouldn't have a 12-year lower life expectancy in this country, which is what they currently have. So if you want to be reconciled with us, we love you in Jesus. But what we actually want you to do is repair the broken things so that our children can live. It's not just about reconciliation. It's not just about intimacy with Jesus. It is about the repair of a social order. This is the church's role. And you know what? If you were in Rwanda, you would absolutely know that. If I was in Rwanda, I would know that, that I have to go and repair this society that's been broken when a million people were killed in a genocide. If I was in South Africa, I would absolutely know that. If there were parts of China, parts of Vietnam, we know these things. We know them when we go into other missionary contexts. But when it's here, it is very easy to forget that. And I've become increasingly convinced that my role as a Christian person and the Christian church's role must be understood as not just restoring culture generally, not just regaining creation, making all things new, but that needs to be deliberately set against the backdrop of American white supremacy. I am convinced of that. And I think for us to talk about the restoring of creation, making creation new, and I know this is a, you know, this is a creation fall redemption church, right? We talk about that stuff. We talk about consummation. We talk about creation regained. That's what we talk about. And I absolutely believe that. The, the trauma that happened to me is that that became inextricable from the cultural realities of American culture, largely related to race. And so what I just want to urge and encourage today is that we think about our lives our creation regained in the context of the American political and social history that has destroyed millions of people and continues to destroy them while we are sitting here. Because I believe that that is the church's role, to return to communion with God, but also to repair communities. And for us to think together, what would it mean for our church to take responsibility to repair what has been broken over these centuries by our nation. That seems to me, in my own life, the central question of my vocation. But I don't know exactly how to do it. And for the past few years, since I had this experience when I was 40, I'm 45 now, I've wandered, I stepped out of pastoral ministry, I've started working on race issues, I left my home in Charlottesville, Virginia, and moved to Memphis, Tennessee. Um, where I'm working to reopen the last historic site where Martin Luther King worked before he was killed. I'm always struggling to learn what it means, but I did see an example of it that same week, uh, that when I was 40. Uh, over a weekend, uh, I had a weekend between those two weeks, and I decided, okay, I'm not going to do any study or work on this weekend because my, my brain is, like, falling apart, and I'm probably going to, like, have a, some sort of emotional crisis reading all this horrible abuse literature. So I need to go to church. So I, did, I was in a little town called Georgetown, South Carolina. I didn't know where any churches were. So I just thought, well, I'm in South Carolina. There's got to be a church within like a baseball's throw of here, right? I mean, there, I can probably find one. So I, I drove down this long driveway, took a right, and, I, and about a half mile on the right, I saw Greater St. Paul uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church, a large African-American church. And I thought, well, all right, maybe I'll go there tomorrow. That was on a Saturday, and I looked at their sign to see the services and I went, and so I went, and I was kind of nervous. Not just because I didn't know anybody, but also because I had all of this, like, social and political history in my head that was, like, completely coloring how I was seeing everything at the moment. Well, I walked in, and, you know, this is, a, this is not, um, this is around the time of the Charleston shootings, okay? So a random white guy who looks kind of scary like I do sitting in an African-American church is not a great thing, right? So it's a little nerve-wracking. So this deacon comes up to me and he says, I'm sitting there in the back by myself. I got there like 15 minutes early. 
And he says, our pastor would like to see you. I was like, oh, okay. So he walked me back into the pastor's office. The pastor sitting behind his desk, and he said, yeah, um, basically, why are you here? He said, you're welcome here. I want you to know that in the, as a Christian church, we welcome you here. But this is also a little bit of a crazy time in our country, and I'd just like to get to know you. Which I totally respected that, him for doing that. And I said, well, actually, I'm a Martin Luther King scholar, and I'm down here writing a dissertation. And he, um, he said, you know, I saw Dr. King one time, and he began to quote a speech. And I finished the speech for him. And he was like, you all right. Okay. <laughs> so he said, I really am glad that you're here. So I would go back out. He said, just go have a seat in the sanctuary and, and enjoy the service, and I'll visit with you afterwards. So he comes out. He's in his robe. And he says, I'd like to ask if there are any visitors here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is totally awesome. So I was like, yeah, here I am. Uh, so I stood up. And this is what he says. He says, um, this, is, this is Reverend Dr. Thompson. Uh, he is down here researching Martin Luther King. Um, he knows our stories, and he cares about our struggle. And, brother, I want you to know, and I want all of the congregation to know, that this brother must be welcome and at home among us. It was amazing. So we had this whole service, and there were lots of amazing times when I had no idea what to do. There was actually a time when, they, when the whole congregation got up and did exercise um, <laughs> to a choreographed version of Pharrell Williams is Happy, which was like... <laughs> totally amazing um, and um, and at the, at the end everybody started getting up and going to the back of the congregation and I did I, back of the sanctuary I didn't know why um, and so I just sat there and I thought well should I go do this Is, and, I, and so this person came and got me and he said hey we're gonna have a love feast I was like I don't know what that is but that sounds awesome I'm gonna come to that so I went and got in line and we're two we're in two lines at the back of the sanctuary and um, and this young girl She's probably 14, steps out in front of everybody. And she says, uh, and the pastor looks at her and he nods, and she says, give him the praise. And the whole congregation goes, Father. And she says, give him the praise, Son. Give him the praise, Holy Spirit. Give him the praise, three in one. It's like amazing. And then she did it again, and the whole congregation started a slow march forward down the aisle, singing this Trinitarian song, like reminding us that we are in this Trinitarian relationship. Now we get to, now I still have no idea what's going on, right? We get down in the front, and I start to realize that there's a person with bread here, and there's a person with wine here. But what they do is rather than handing it to you, they, hand, they, hand, they make you hand it to each other. So the person would give me the bread, and give her the wine, the woman that was standing next to me, the wine. And then I would hand it to her, and she would, we would serve each other. And then we had to hug and kiss each other on the cheek. So I want you to just think about that for a minute. We're walking down the aisle, singing this Trinitarian song. We're restored to this table fellowship with one another. We're embracing one another. Got this amazing kiss on the cheek. And at the end, I, I was like, this is like the greatest day ever. The pastor put his hand on my shoulder as I was walking out of the church, and he said, he said, stop for a second. He said, I need you to finish your dissertation, and I need you to go do what you know you have to do to fix this. And I said, yes, sir, and I got in my car and I drove away. That, for me, was the beginning of my understanding of what's happening in this passage, that I was restored into communion with the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that my work was to give him praise by working to repair the community 
that I had participated in breaking. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, to meditate upon this passage, to meditate upon this vocation, and to meditate upon what it means to be people who believe in creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and the regaining of creation in the midst of this political and social order. Because I believe that when we do, we will hear Jesus calling us, inviting us to a vocation of repair. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I ask that you would bless us. I ask that you would open our hearts and our eyes, open our hands, make us men, women, and children of courage. Lord, send us out into this particular culture, which has done and which continues to do unbelievable damage to people, even in the midst of all of the goodness that is here. Lord, help us to be people with wisdom and courage to discern and to act. Lead us, we pray, through Christ. Amen.